the ACRI podcast. I'm James Lawrenson, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Today, we'll be focusing on a hugely significant aspect of the Australia-China relationship, the more than 160,000 Chinese students studying at Australian educational institutions. Now, the economic contributions these students have made has long been recognised by the universities, of course, but also in the real estate and tourism sectors, and more than one Australian government minister has also said that these students make wonderful ambassadors for Australia once they return home. But the discussion more recently has moved in a very different direction. Um, This year, in particular, there have been four incidences on Australian university campuses that have attracted major media attention, and probably not for good reasons. The first was a Monash University lecturer who was suspended following the inclusion of a question in a quiz that some Chinese students deemed made fun of Chinese officials. Objections to a Sydney University lecturer's use of a map showing Chinese claimed territory as part of India resulted in an apology by the academic. So too did complaints against an ANU lecturer who translated a warning about cheating into Chinese language. And most recently, a Newcastle University lecturer was confronted by some Chinese students for listing Taiwan as a country, a secret recording of which was provided to Chinese language media. So to discuss these weighty issues about Chinese students in Australia, I'm joined by Wan Ning Sun, Professor of Media and Communication Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UTS. Welcome to the podcast, Wan Ning. Thank you, James. Wan Ning's also a fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities and a member of the editorial board of several journals, Communication, Culture and Critique, the Asian Journal of Communication Continuum, a journal of media and cultural studies, and another well-known China journal based in Australia, The China Journal. Now, in her own work, Wan Ning has written extensively about Chinese language media in Australia. Her most recent books include Media and Communication in the Chinese Diaspora with John Sinclair and Unequal China, the Political Economy and Cultural Politics of Inequality with Guo Yingjie. This year, Wan Ning has also undertaken some interesting research related to Chinese students in Australia. Particularly, she's run some focus groups amongst Chinese students studying Australian universities to try and get a better better handle on what exactly is going on. Now, before I launch into my questions with Wan Ning, I did want to draw our our listeners' attention to the fact that the questions that I'll be talking to Wan Ning today about were also addressed in a recent keynote address she delivered to the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association. Now, this address is about an hour long and it's available on Facebook if you search for the ANZCA's Facebook page. With that said, let's get into the questions. Wan Ning, can I ask you a big picture question first off? The issue of Chinese students in Australia has become a hot topic recently. But of course, this is off the back of a lot of uh, media commentary talking about other issues surrounding the general topic of Chinese government interference in Australian society. Um, For example, there has been talk of the Chinese government uh, essentially taking over the Chinese language media in Australia. There's also been talk about Chinese government connected figures, business figures in Australia, trying to influence government decision making through making political donations. So I guess my question for you first off is, as a media studies scholar, do you see any commonalities between all of these examples that people are raising, or the claimed examples of Chinese government influence in Australia? 
Right, uh, James, that's actually quite a complex question. So let me just uh, break it down into a few parts. Um, first of all, let me say something in general um, as a way of assessing the media's coverage of China um, on the uh, whole. I would say that um, it has this positive side and the uh, negative side. I think the positive uh, side is that um, some important issues of concerns have been brought to light and certain actions which deserve to be called out have been called out. For instance, the issue of political donation is a very important one and I think media has done a good job um, highlighting that. And also some commentators have debated on whether, uh, for instance, the Confucius Institute actually has a place in today's uh, universities in Australia. And, of course, the most recent case of some Chinese uh, individuals, uh, you know, forming a, fl uh, an, a fleet, driving uh, luxury cars, right. going to the Indian embassy to protest, and I find that extraordinary. And, I, frankly, I find that just, I find that really amazing, and I think that the media did it absolutely the right thing to call it out. But I also think on the whole the question uh, of the quality of the reporting um, uh, needs to be raised and I think the quality of reporting has left to be much to be desired. Too often I think the reports uh, that I have read are uh, can be quite sometimes quite sensational, sometimes quite alarmist and if I can use a, a, a theoretical word quite essentializing in the case of the PRC students, um, as an example, for instance, I would say that the actions of a few hot-headed individuals um, are often represented in this coverage as typical or representative of the entire student cohort. Uh, and their dispute with the individual teachers or lecturers are described as some kind of ideological front line or, or even war. I think that kind of words is simply just um, not really very accurate. I think the current narrative do actually say more about Australia's own confusion or their own questioning about their own cultural belonging. There is a lot of, probably a lot of um, self um, sort of doubt about who we really are. Are we part of Asia? What are we going to do with China? And it's becoming so important to us and how do we engage with it? So I think there is a a lot of uh, anxiety and a lot of fear, and a lot of these kind of narratives are driven by uh, this sense of anxiety and fear. But I think the most serious problem with, um, with uh, some of these narratives is the tendency to uh, um, select facts to fit in with certain preconceived assumptions. Um, even though the issues may change from time to time, for instance, initially it started with the issue of the Chinese language newspaper in Australia, and then it kind of went on to the political donation, and now currently to the international students. Who knows what would happen and what the next issue would be. But I just think, despite the fact that the issues actually change from time to time, the, uh, the narrative framework of covering these uh, stories on this incident tend to be quite similar. And this framework tend to be quite narrow, and, and I sometimes think it suffers from a lack of diverse sort of opinions. Unfortunately, I have the, this impression that, that the stories that are published tend to feed off each other, 
rather than actually forming a space where robust dialogue and, and, and the conversations actually take place. And, and I also uh, have this uh, impression that uh, most commentary tend to come from uh, commercial media, like Fairfax or news. I think ABC is not really playing a leadership role as it should be in providing balance and the comprehension. Okay. But coming to the uh, uh, question of the uh, media's coverage of the uh, Chinese students, um, I find it actually uh, the best way to get a handle on the sentiments uh, of the Chinese students is actually going to talk to them. So uh, I, uh, this is what I have done. And uh, of course, you, you know, I cannot claim that my uh, research from the focus group is going to is representative. Um, but it's better that I actually do this and not to do this at all. I have actually um, come away from this uh, focus group with some insights. The first insight is that uh, there is a diverse range of positions and opinions among the Chinese students' community. Not everyone endorses, agrees, or resonates with the sentiments of those a handful of Chinese students that are covered in the uh, stories. And sometimes, even if they actually agree with the sentiment of the students, they do not necessarily see it is appropriate to take the actions that have been taken by these okay. students. So that's something that I think is very important to, to remember, not to lump these few individuals with the, the entire cohort. And that's what I meant by essentializing. The other insight I have come away from this focus group is that um, one of the uh, graduate students, in response to my question about uh, how they feel when they, they read these kind of stories, their response to me is that we don't feel good, we don't like reading these kind of stories. So I actually throw this question back to them and ask them a, a kind of devil's advocate kind of question. I said, but the story is not about you. The story is about Chinese critique of, criticism of the Chinese government or certain individuals. What has it got to do with you and why are you uh, offended? And everybody uh, tells me that, uh, well, it is about a country that I come from. And I just find it impossible to separate the, the country I come from from, from my own feeling about it. Mm. So, and they, they say, it is hard not to take it personally. Okay, well, it's, um, it, it's nice to hear some Chinese student voices, because um, a lot of the reports about Chinese students don't actually seem to speak to Chinese students directly. So it's nice to, to, um, to hear that feedback from your focus groups. Wondering, can I just go now to the keynote address you gave um, not too long ago? And one of the things you said in that keynote address that really stood out to me was this. You said, we shouldn't forget that Chinese students are coming from a culture that respects hierarchy and authority, encourages students to be modest and polite, and in which being argumentative and confrontational is considered bad manners. Now, when I listened to that, I couldn't help but contrast it with the, the narrative a Chinese student we're, read about, we're, we're often reading about in Australian media today, which is very much of a confrontational and argumentative Chinese student. So what is going on here? Um, is nationalism becoming a force that's rising over time, that's overshadowing those traditional Chinese cultural attributes? Or is the Australian media misrepresenting the Chinese student cohort? What's going on? Are you able to shed some light on that? Um, I think it is true that um, um, students from China do come from a culture 
that respect hierarchy and authority. Yet, as you've described, sometimes they uh, covered as and reported as having bad manners. I think this is a very complex issue. I think the one um, key thing to remember is uh, the the kind of widespread lack of English uh, language proficiency. That is actually a very serious problem. Of course, some students have better English than others, but across the board, there's a general lack of English proficiency. This affects their capacity to engage in calm and, uh, and rational discussion. The fact that English is used in the classroom is also means that the, the, the power dynamics in the classrooms are not equal. Some Chinese can be quite sort of fluent and, 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 uh, in, in expressing themselves and quite very humorous uh, when they express and discuss in Chinese, but get really, really tongue-tied and find it difficult to, to engage when they have to speak English. So as a result of this, you have two possible scenarios. Well, the first one is that uh, you know they tend to be very quiet and non-participatory, and if they disagree, they disagree you know quietly, and you know, or they just simply will not engage. Alternatively, uh, their responses could be quite visceral and and quite emotional, and and they may come across as being quite uh, aggressive or even unreasonable. Um, but it's actually quite important to point out, and this is something that I think the uh, the Australian media uh, probably should take some notice about, the fact that the, this kind of emotional uh, outburst or display is very often driven by an, a kind of uh, feeling that it's being hurt. Although the action might may come across as uh, ang uh, anger or bigotry or uh, arrogance, it is actually driven by an innate sense of uh, uh, being humiliated and being hurt. Because that, that kind of trope of our feelings are being hurt is a very common expression in China. Right. And they also come from a cultural memory and history of remembering um, what has happened to China mm. at, in the hands of the imperialistic West. Mm. And that's kind of... Uh, that trope of grievance and hurt carries wisdoms. Now, moving on to the uh, Chinese uh, students' uh, uh, patriotism, I think there is a tendency to see Chinese students' nationalistic behavior in the light of China's rise, China's assertive and so quote and unquote unreasonable behavior. I think it's perfectly understandable. And this certainly is the framework. Uh, within which uh, such um, behaviours are reported by journalists. And it certainly is consistent with and further um, feeding to the current framework of China's influence. But it is quite uh, useful for us to remember that the Chinese patriotism um, has more than one parent. Right? They just think there's one parent. That they just thought there's just party, the CCP. But it could be a lot of other things. It could be market nationalism. Nationalism is big business in China. It's about box office, right? It's about ratings, it's about circulations, and it's about readership, right? Think Global Times. And think the most popular movie, for instance, called The Wolf Warriors. Have you guys seen it? Wolf uh, I haven't Warriors seen it, but of course, you, yes, you cannot yeah. help but reading about it. Um, Four it, yeah. billion. Yeah. Yuan profit mm. margin. 
and its nationalism is also about monetization on the internet. It's a clickbait, so it helps sell cars and products and your posts on your online post. I would say that the the Chinese students' patriotism come from many sources,、right. and I would actually say that you know it's more likely. Their patriotism comes from this sort, this kind of sources that I've just outlined, than directly from the government propaganda. It is really important to remember there is a difference between China's official patriotism、um, as an ideology and everyday patriotism. Okay, so wondering just before you talked about the reactions to Chinese um, students, um, one can be. Are quite aggrieved and become quiet because they have trouble engaging in discussion in the classroom, and the other one can appear more aggressive. How do you see academics in Australia responding to those situations? So when there's some sort of conflict, perhaps conflict is too strong a word, but when an issue comes up in the classroom, how do you see Australian academics respond? Do do they respond in a consistent way, or like Chinese students, do they respond in a, in a diverse set of ways? They don't respond in a consistent way. There's a range of、uh, ways in which they respond.、Um, this again is based on my extensive conversations with my、uh, colleagues who teach media and journalism communication across the country. One、uh, common response to this is、uh, they're here as international students. We're providing them with an educational product, and education、uh, export is a big deal for us. They're here. Um, to learn a certain set of skills, and we're here to provide them with certain set of skills. And so,、um, let's not worry too much about the values and you know the politics of it. So that's one、uh, common response. And tend to it's not、um, it's not surprising. Tend to、uh, come from colleagues who teach media production and, and the practices side of things. And there is another、uh, way of responding to this, which is、uh, um, you may come from a one-party rule kind of political system where you don't have much freedom in, with your speech and your expression. But ours is a li- liberal democracy. You're here now. You should actually learn how you should、uh, you should learn how to actually、uh, speak freely, think critically, and go back and change the system. And、uh, that that is another way of 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 looking at this. Yet another way of、uh, responding to this could be: we might not necessarily teach you a set of skills and or a set of way of looking at things that you find useful. But hey, at the end of the days, even our local students may not find what teach them useful. <laughs> But it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need a liberal arts degree or you won't benefit from them, because at the end of the day, you're here to have your horizon broadened.、Right. So yes, that there is a. Uh, a range of response, but of course the the most common response at the moment increasingly is questioning、uh, from my colleagues. What are we doing here? If if we have so many international students, not just from the PRC, from、uh, many many countries, and they are、uh, making up up to thirty percent of our student population, and the our income, university's income, is increasingly relying on them, particularly since the. Government is threatening to cut higher education funding, so shouldn't we actually start seriously thinking about looking at our、uh, what our course offerings and the teachings, the way, what content we're teaching them, and actually 
see whether we actually come up with uh, some ways of teaching that they can relate to and provide content that they, 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 they recognize or actually allow them to sort of uh, pursue that kind of analysis they can in their own context. Colleagues are asking these questions. Uh, questions are being asked across the country, and which is why when I actually gave the keynote speech, um, many colleagues came up to talk to me and say, we have been thinking a lot about this. We right. still don't have answers, yeah. and this system is so huge and entrenched. We know there are problems. We want to address this. We just don't know where to start. Right, okay. And one thing, in that talk, in that keynote, you uh, proposed one possible path. Um, you, you said you didn't have all the answers, but one thing you did say was that uh, you, you coined this term cosmopolitan sensibility. Um, it seemed to me that you were saying if, if academics were more um, cognizant of this, of, of being more cosmopolitanly sensible, if I could say that, um, that we'd probably get a better outcome. Can you describe for our listeners what cosmopolitan sens sensibility means? I guess what I was trying to say is that, um, you know, whenever actually I talk about that there are issues and people say, well, have you come up with a new solution? Or have you got a new theory? Or have you got a new paradigm? And, and some people even suggest, you know, um, we need to de-Westernise communication theory or research. And uh, my comeback to that is that uh, um, I don't think we actually need to come up with new theories and par paradigms. I think the existing insight, intellectual insights are already there. Um, and, and one of them is um, the, the, the importance of becoming cosmopolitan, both for our, us as teachers, as well as trying to produce and uh, encourage a cosmopolitan sensibility to our students, as well as inject a sense of cosmopolitan sensibility into our, the content of our curriculum. But um, by uh, the term cosmopolitan sensibility, I really just mean uh, a certain kind of attitude and a certain kind of capacity, a certain kind of attitude to um, be prepared to engage in self-reflection on one's own cultural practices and trying to understand where one's own cultural positions and, and, and bias uh, come from and, and also try and be prepared to compare this with the values and, 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 and outlooks that are different from yours. But rather than actually saying mine is better than yours or mine is superior to yours, but actually trying to understand where these differences come from in the first place and how we can develop and help our student develop a critical language with which we actually account for these differences. I guess you know, in a nutshell is the, the capacity and the attitude and the willingness to be self-reflexive and to entertain different and alternative point of view and actually to suspend judgment but actually improve understanding. Yeah, you know, when it's interesting when you're talking now and I listen, it it shouldn't actually be that hard, right? I mean, as as academics in Australia, this idea of being self-reflective and, and considering different viewpoints, that's the bread and butter of what we do. So it's interesting that I think it's good. We might need to be reminded of doing something that we probably actually should be doing already. Next question now. Um, we're, we're going to start wrapping this up, but I, I've got two more questions. One of them is this. The Australian media often depicts Chinese students as fiercely patriotic and brainwashed by um, Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Um, in your keynote, you said that we would do well to remember a different perspectives on Chinese students. 
Could you expand on that for our listeners? Um, by that, I really uh, meant to say that just like everyone else, the Chinese students are quite paradoxical human beings, and they are quite capable of entertaining quite ambivalent, uh, ambivalent views and, point, uh, and positions and everyday practices. So we need to sort of appreciate the fact that these so-called patriotic Chinese students are the same. You know, we see them waving sort of Chinese flags and shout patriotic slogans on TV. You know, so you see that in the four corners. And this, people see that as being quite threatening, right? See that as a sign of a, you know, jingoistic kind of aggression. But this could be the same students who can be quite clear-eyed about how the Chinese propaganda works. They live through the system. They know how to deal with that. And they're very clever at, you know, uh, dealing with that. For instance, they would know how to jump the inter- internet firewalls. Right. They how to do all these kind of subversive things on a daily basis in order to get around the censorship. And it could also be the same students, the same people, who would write doggerels that rhyme very well, very cleverly to implicitly criticize uh, uh, the government. And they would invent all these kind of linguistic homophones in order to get around censorship of sensitive words, they, they are very good at playing play cat and mouse with the censors. And uh, they do it on daily basis. For instance, you get on WeChat messages from them saying, quick, read this before it's deleted, you know, <laughs> and then play that kind of time lag and stuff. So they grow up in a culture of propaganda. So as a result of that, they're pretty good at deciphering propaganda and decoding news, sometimes in a quite oppositional kind of way. Having said that, now, this is where the paradoxical side comes in. The same student could also be quite enchanted with the notion of the Western media as being much, much better than the Chinese media because they grew up in China thinking Chinese media is censored, Western media is free, right? right? And then they come to Australia and they read about uh, Australians' coverage, media coverage of China and about themselves and they actually realize, oh, this is not all true. So I would like to have a conversation with my teachers and the local students about this. And then they don't agree with me. Right. Not only they don't agree with me, they refuse to listen to me. And not only that, they call me the uh, you know, students of the, uh, of the Chinese uh, government. So they just realize that the, the local students or teachers can be just as biased uh, as they are. So they become kind of disenchanted with the notion of objectivity, freedom of expression, and democratic values. All of the things that they actually come to learn about in the first place, which I think is really, really ironic and poignant. Mm. So, you know, I, I think that's, that is, just shows how paradoxical they are, and we will do well to remember that. They are not just this one-dimensional right, kind right. of characters. Perhaps that's a key message um, of, of the whole podcast so far, is to recognise this diversity within the Chinese student cohort and also the individuals in the cohort. They're quite paradoxical as well. So there's a lot of different perspectives, yeah. um, no matter what level you're looking at. Well, let me finish on this question, Wanning, um, and it really does flow on from, from that last point. Th- this was the part of your keynote address that probably stuck out to me the most. You, you were talking about the focus groups you did with Chinese um, students, um, and you said, look, to be sure, that Chinese students can be patriotic. You recounted research you did with Chinese students where you asked them whether they considered themselves patriotic. And just to give our listeners some quotes, um, one, you said, answered, you bet, the longer I stay here, the more patriotic I become. Another said, for us, the best patriotic education happens when you leave China. Extraordinary. 
Yet another said, I've been here for over two years and I've never seen a single positive story about China. And a fourth, it doesn't matter where I am, we are always portrayed negatively. Now that's quite extraordinary, those quotes. What is going on? Well, this is actually quite logical, the fact that you become more patriotic once you leave your own country. Some people find that actually paradoxical, but I actually find it quite logical. When you are in China and everybody is telling you patriotism is a good thing, this patriotism mostly takes the form of pride in their own country. I think the Chinese propaganda's way of promoting patriotism is to show how strong we have become, how much we have achieved, so that people identify with their motherland. It's through pride promotion. Nationalism can take the shape, take sh- the shape of pride, but it's when you personally have the experience of having that pride hurt right. that nationalism right. becomes personal mm. and internalized. And where do you actually have chances of actually having that pride hurt? It is when you go overseas. So when you leave China, you become a racial and ethnic minority, yeah. right? And all of a sudden, you realize that actually, you know, the various experiences of being treated as the racial other contribute to a sense of a very heightened sense of your racial otherness. Anybody who has been an international student or an expat can appreciate that, right? So these kind of experiences could range from random racism on the public transport, on one hand, to anti-Chinese posters that you find from time and time on Australian university campuses. Right. And on top of that racial dimension, then there is this perceived ideological incompatibility between China and Australia. So as a consequence of this, I think it's a kind of a double whammy, right? Uh, as a consequence of this double whammy, the Chinese students feel unfairly tarnished as the party's running dogs. Mm. And simply because they, sometimes they happen to support the government's positions on certain issues. And of course, the current media um, narrative about China's influence, although they are not actually directly targeting the Chinese people living in Australia, have actually the uh, indirect ramifications on how these people feel. Mm. Many people feel, including some of the people who come from Taiwan or Hong Kong or other uh, countries, but they look Chinese, feel under siege because they say to somebody, to a stranger, I could very well come from the PRC Mm -hmm. and there's no reason why they should actually treat me differently from from them. Okay, Um, let me ask one final question. And this is how we might think about moving forward. We've talked a lot about the challenges and they're real. They're not easy to deal with. Um, but, but how do you think, one thing we might actually make some progress on this rather than continuing to butt heads, as we appear to have been doing over the last six months? Mm. Well, I think it's a very important question, and it's probably something that uh, is going to occupy our sort of attention for a long time. And, of course, there's no quick solution and no easy answer to this, but uh, it is a good time for us to start thinking about this. Um, uh, I'll just share an, uh, an anecdote with you from my recent experience of teaching in uh, a classroom, a graduate student, and my job for that particular lecture is to demonstrate that there is different communication style between different cultures. And so to put the students at ease and ask them a, a question, and I said, how do you, exp- um, how do you uh, uh, express your love for your 
parents. The classroom was quite mixed. There were international students, a lot of them from China, and there were some local students. A local um, female student uh, responded by saying, "Oh yeah, well obviously." She said, "Obviously, I tell her, I tell mum, mum, I love you." I heard her answer and turned to the Chinese students sitting on the other side of the, the other side of the room, and I said, "How do you say you love your mum?" And they look at us and they say, "We don't say I love you face to face." It just doesn't feel like the right natural thing to say. It's just like、uh, it sounds too corny, and that came as、uh, as shocking to the local students. You know, if you love your mum, why don't you say so? You know, communication is about direct communication, saying what you mean, right? So the local student learned something about the Chinese way of communication. At the same time, the Chinese students are put in a situation where they have to reflect on their own style of communication and thinking, "Oh, my way of communication is not the only natural way of communicating." Teachers could、uh, think harder about how to come up with ways to encourage、mm. the local students and international students to share their sort of.、Uh, Experience from their own everyday lives, so that they could actually learn something from each other. And in the process of learning something from the other, each other, they actually end up learning something about themselves.、Mm-hmm. And I think on the part of the teachers,、uh, they need to think very hard about how to design courses, how to、uh, structure lectures and tutorial discussions, and、uh, how to write and design assessment tasks. So that the students, all students, feel、uh, equally encouraged and, and to share their experiences from their own cultural context、mm. without actually validating some and discrediting others.、Mm, mm. And, and but I think that a lot of our colleagues are trying to do that, and some of them are doing very well. But I think that、um, and sometimes it's a matter of cross-cultural literacy, and frankly, I think some uh, uh, teachers uh, could um, do with some、uh, improvement in terms of how to actually、uh, teach international students in increasingly global classrooms.、Mm-hmm. And on the part of the international students, particularly students from China, I also think that the, there are a few things that they need to realize. They need to realize that actually. Once upon a time in China, when they actually learn things, they're taught certain things as facts, and they take that as indisputable facts. To them, whether uh, you know um, uh, issues of national sovereignty, for instance, or issues of territorial di- dispute, you know whether a pro- particular province or region or is part of China or not, or since when, which dynasty, all that kind of stuff, they're learning from China. This is the only facts they have learned, and so they they come here. Whenever they actually hear different views about these so-called facts, that they can become very sensitive to this, and they take issues with this, and some take offense with this. But I think if they learn to become more critical in thinking, they may realize that actually the many things that they learn as facts may be in fact historical constructs. Right?、Mm-hmm. People from another education system. Could have learned a different set of facts, and to them, that set of facts could be just as indisputable. So I think both the local students and and, and teachers or commentators or whatever, and the international students from China should actually learn to agree to disagree, but not to impose their views on others. And I think that's the challenge that's facing、mm. everybody、mm. at the moment. Also,、um, 
as I said, you know, some of the international students can are quite young. You know, we can all cast our own memories back to when <laughs> we're nineteen or and twenty. I bet we all have said something, done something that we regret. never me one right. day. That's right. Yeah. So I think that um, we may give them the benefit of doubt and actually hope that you know everybody will mature. I think that international students may also learn that. Uh, while they may be quite savvy about resisting Chinese official propaganda, they could actually benefit from learning more about how the Australian media works, mm. right? They may need to learn, or maybe it is our job to show them, not to lump Australian government, Australian people, Australian public, and Australian media as just this one thing, right? And unlike the Chinese media, the media in Australia do not have to answer to the government. So what the media say does not represent necessarily represent the government view. And they also need to realise that actually Australian public or media commentators may make quite critical comments about China or the Chinese people. But at the same time, journalists can be just as critical of their own government and their own sort of uh, right, uh, right. public figures. And it's just a, a, a rule of engagement, if you like. Mm. And so, in, imperfect as it is, you know, this is how liberal democracy works, right? So there are rules and procedures, but there's room for debate, and there's certain ways of engaging with debate. And there, these are the things that they really need to, yeah. to learn. It would serve their interests better mm. if they learn to sort of um, how things work here. Mm. Well, I mean, that was absolutely fascinating. I, I can't help but thinking that the solutions are not actually that difficult, uh, but it does require all of these issues that you've talked about to be unpacked. And whether they will be unpacked, I guess, is the big question. Because once they're unpacked, it's actually not hard to, to see the different perspectives and how we might deal with them, even if we don't always agree. Um, but if they're not unpacked at all... Um, then the outcomes may not be pretty. Okay, let's finish up there. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes. A brief teaser for our next podcast. That will be an interview with Dr. Jane Persian of the University of Southern Queensland. who will be speaking with ACRI Director Bob Carr about the White Australia policy and the migration of post-war Russians to Australia via the China route. Um, Dr. Jane Persian is also participating in ACRI panel dealing with that very topic. Find out more about ACRI's research and events on our website, including Professor Wan Ning Sun's report on Chinese media in Australia, australiachinarelations.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.